boys and ghouls welcome to a very special interview episode of dads from the crypt today we're talking to actor bruce mcgill he starred in the season three episode of tales of the crypt the trap along with roles in animal house the legend of bagger vance and most recently american underdog welcome to the podcast bruce why thank you that's i forgot that just came out yeah underdog story yeah, well, that's a good one. I'm glad you put Bagger Vance in there. It's one of my all-time favorites. Great. Um, yeah, we can talk about that. Um, but let's get started with some background. So uh, where did you grow up? Where are you from? Born and raised in San Antonio, Texas, and uh, grew up there in the same house that is still there that I rented for a little while when I went back to my neighborhood and bought a house about a year ago, a year and a half ago. So I'm, after 53 years out in New York and L.A., and on location all over. I'm going back to my neighborhood, and it feels great. Well, that's cool. Do you have uh, your favorite barbecue places uh, picked out? Oh, I do. I, there's, you know, there's a there's a bunch of good ones, some better than others. But there's, as far as I'm concerned, maybe it's because I grew up there. But uh, San Antonio for Tex-Mex and barbecue can't be beat. Do you have a favorite restaurant you want to give a shout out to? Well, barbecue close to where I live is Barbecue Station. Barbecue great. Station. It's a a group from a uh, family from Lockhart, which is one of the barbecue capitals of central Texas. And they moved to San Antonio and uh, I think they bought an old gas station is why they call it barbecue station. Mm-hmm. And that was like 27, 28 years ago. And they, they imported real guys from Lockhart and they burn real Texas Oak oh, nice. and, you know, get there early cause they run out. That's all the good ones do. Right. Uh, and in San Antonio, the great, if you're going to San Antonio, uh, Mi Tierra is a 24-hour-a-day Mexican restaurant that's terrific. It's down mm-hmm. in Market Square near the river, not on the river. And, of course, the river walk in San Antonio is pretty charming. Yeah. Great town. Do you ever have time to do your own uh, grilling or smoking? Oh, sure. I mean, you know, I, people think I work all the time, but that's just a, that's just not true. And now, especially, I, I'm very selective. I still work. And because mm-hmm. I love it. And as long as I can remember lines, I will. But uh, yeah, I'm I'm pretty good cook, I have to say. What's your favorite uh, grilling or smoking item? Oh, God. I, you know, I'm, I like, I don't do much fish. So I, I, all the proteins, I'm chicken. I like to grill steaks. And, you know, there's a big difference between barbecue and, and grilling. Right. And uh, barbecue, of course, is low temperatures. Smoke, slow smoke smoke yeah slow yeah, slow and low grilling is you know put a great piece of steak on a fire and it's done in eight or nine minutes mm-hmm. and uh you know I'll, i do the turkey on a barbecue at thanksgiving or christmas if I, when i live somewhere where they have them year round i not do them any time of the year because they're so good right and also it's whatever my wife would eat right so she's my audience yeah i hear that all right. Before you make me too hungry, <laughs> go on. You, you started it. <laughs> I know. I know. Um, so what were your early artistic influences? 
how did you uh, get on the road to acting? You know, I watching Ed Sullivan, I heard Louis Armstrong mm. when I was about four. And I just sort of turned around and did a little four-year-old's impersonation of Louis Armstrong. And it got a lot of laughs. So I, maybe I think that was one of the first things where I thought maybe, hmm, it feels good to make people laugh. And then when I was about six, I started taking piano lessons. So my first performing was on the piano. And I did that until, you know, puberty where nobody of your peers wanted to hear about your Beethoven. They wanted to, you know, to play football or whatever. So I switched to the guitar because the Beatles were happening and the guitar was cool. Mm. And I started, uh, I was drafted into my first play when I was about 11 or 12. Uh, operetta called Johnny Appleseed and I played Johnny Appleseed because the kid who had the part I hadn't thought about doing plays yet the kid that had the part got bad grades and his mother pulled him out of his extracurriculars until he pulled his grades up so the music teacher just she you know I was in the choir and so she said she knew I was musical and she only had two weeks to get her leading man ready so she said you're going to be Johnny Appleseed and I said okay because that was there was no rebellion. That was, it was probably 1961 or two, but it was certainly before any of the uh, Vietnam era rebellion. So it was pretty much the golden fifties and the post-World War II era where you did what you were told if you were in my household. My mm -hmm. father was retired military and I treated the teachers with the same respect. I treated my parents. So when she said, you're going to do this, I just said, okay, fine. And it was a blast and I got a standing ovation. And that really hooked me, I think. Because any kid uh, wants positive reinforcement. And most of them where I grew up get it from sports. But um, if you get a really good chunk of positive reinforcement from anywhere, you, you're likely to go down that path at least a little further. So that was the, that was the genesis of it. And then when I was 14, I... Uh, decided I'd try to be a professional actor. So getting, getting on the path early and having some very fortunate uh, directors and teachers in my path, just good luck there. Uh, I had a head start on a lot of people. And I started doing Shakespeare very early with the with English actor and an Irish actor. And they were both very, very good. One of them was a director producer of, of some renown. And uh, so I just got you know, early breaks in terms of training and uh, models and coaching. And uh, so when I got to New York City and I, I dearly wanted to be in a speaking role in Shakespeare in the Park by the time I was 25 and I managed to do that. And then, that, that you know, somebody, a casting person saw me in a Shakespeare in the Park and gave me an audition for a film and I got the part and that was it. That's, you know, you've seen my resume, I'm sure. It's many, 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 many credits ago. Mm -hmm. um, so that's the, that's the thumbnail sketch. If I write the book, it'll be at least a, a chapter. No, that's, that's really interesting. I love hearing that coming up and, get, and getting ahead. Um, what were your, did you have any favorite films growing up or any favorite genres or were you into comics? Well, not really into comics. I liked, uh, well, one of my early favorite, I loved Lawrence of Arabia and Bridge on the River Kwai, the David Lean films. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I didn't really, 
when we were little, we went to this, you know, giant behemoth and the, you know, the scare, supposedly scary movies. And, and that, that really didn't, horror movies have never really been my favorite. And uh, good comedies like Mad, 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 Mad World, I thought was great. And, funny. Right. <laughs> and then as I get a little older, uh, the Godfather movies were great. Hey, any story that uh, gets me from the beginning and doesn't let me go, um, has, it's great. I mean, if it doesn't disappoint me at any moment where I, my, my thought gets into my head about, okay, that actor, what else do I see him in? If I'm just buying everything as the reality they're presenting, those are my favorite kind of movies. And it can be serious, comedy, tragic, pastoral, literal, I don't care. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about Animal House. So that was your first big role. Um, your home, Your home area. Yes, I, I went. I did go to the University of Oregon where it was filmed. Um, yeah. Let me ask you the question. I'm sure everybody wants to know: How did you learn to play the William Tell Overture on your throat? Ah, well, I learned that back in probably elementary school, and the way I learned it was by trial and error because there was a commercial. I believe it was a black and white commercial in the '50s for Maxwell House coffee, and it showed a, a percolator on a stove and it would go like that and it was I thought that was just the coolest sound <laughs> so I I messed around with it hitting on my head or I was thinking how did they, I did this a lot how did how did that person or that how did that happen how did they do that and uh, so I got really good at making the sound and I'm a a, you know, piano player and a classical guitar player. So to do the William Tell Overture, I could, I can, anything I can hum, I can play on my throat. Wow. So the way it got into the film was, the film was, it may look um, like ad-libbed and stuff, but it's very carefully scripted. But the director, John Landis said, okay, you know how you get a good part in this movie? You bring me bits for the toga party. Mm-hmm. So being a classical actor, very studious, I, sat up in my room that night before the meeting and and came up with things I might do. And one of them was playing the William Tell Overture. And when I did it for the director, first he said, what is that? What is that? And I said, well, I'll just show you. So I did it. And he went, oh, that's that's great. That's too good for the toga party. And he, and he stuck it on my entrance, which mm. was never would have occurred to me, but it's great. It is just... Uh, I mean, the, coming up the stairs on the motorcycle is a great entrance anyway. But then without a word, to put your beer in your cold beer in your suede vest and play that on your throat to a, a bewildered pinto, that's just a great entrance. Oh, it's fantastic. And then you end it with that little, like, zoop. Well, that, the way that happened was before we went, and nobody knew. Landis wanted Tom Holtz, who played pinto, to be surprised. So he, he and I and the... Uh, sound recordist and the boom operator went off into a room and set levels. So what you see in the movie is take one of Pinto's face. Oh, really? He didn't know it was going to happen. And uh, so I, before we went back and did it, I said to Landis, well, you're going to cut, right? I mean, I'm not going to play the entire William Tell Overture on my throat. And he said, oh, no, no, we'll cut. And so when we got to a point where I thought he should cut, he didn't. So I went <laughs> and left. <laughs> so, uh, so you know, I was a stage actor, so I know I know how to make an exit, and uh, you know, I I, I was uh, I'm 
I'm a confident actor and I don't carry a lot of nervousness about it. I, especially in the movies, because you know, if it isn't good, you'll do it again. But I thought that he, he had uh, let it gone on long enough. And I, I also thought it was perfect. I was arriving back at the house. And so I did the little thing and it was time to go do whatever else I had to do. That's it. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll admit I, that's been one of my favorite comedies of all time. I've seen it for decades and I always just thought that was like ADR or they just put like sound effects over it. Everything you hear, not only that, but what you hear me playing is take one production oh. track. No, I mean, yeah, that's the, that's a kind of moment that I'm sure you can't recreate. Well, you can, if good actors can do things you wouldn't imagine to make it look fresh. That's what it is. Like if, if you're doing eight shows a week on Broadway, you mm-hmm. have to you have to have that skill set. Yeah, good it point. has to feel like the first time every time. Hmm. So yeah, we can, but uh, what you don't get is that genuine reaction from Tom Holtz. Right. Yeah, the reaction part. Yeah, and and, and you'll see if you see it again. Look at it. He he kind of blooms like a sunflower, but he doesn't break character, and that's what you trust really good actors to do. If something is interesting and they they just stay in the moment, and unless they you know, get mad or unless they're just so cracked up, they can't continue. A good actor will stay in character and they get little golden moments like that. I mean, that movie's just chock full of golden moments. Yeah, it holds up. I think it's a really good movie. Yeah. Um, so let's back up one second, talk about how you got your role in Animal House. Um, again, Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was not my first film, but uh, John Landis came to and I'd already read for the part and didn't get it. But he had come to see uh, Henry V, I think it was, Shakespeare in the Park. And uh, he saw me in it. And what I didn't know is from the time I auditioned and was rejected, he'd been auditioning all these actors that the casting people in New York thought he should use. And he rejected all of them. And it finally dawned on him that he was reading the actors for D-Day by having them read Belushi's lines, Bluto's lines, uh, because if you'll remember, D-Day does not talk much. No. It's a very strong visual presence, but, you know, hard to do a reading. So the studio said, John, you've got to cast your principal. You've got to cast D-Day. We have, we're, we're about ready to shoot. So he said, oh, gosh. And he looked at the list of actors he had rejected. And he said, and this I heard in a press junket interview when we were releasing. He said, okay. Who's the best scratched out actor on this list? Oh, I saw him in Shakespeare last night. He was really good. Bruce McGill. Let's use him. <laughs> well, that's, that's how I got cast. And did you know how to use, how to ride a motorcycle before that? That's another good story. Yes, I did. But uh, when I got there, we had a very tough first AD, Cliff Coleman, who was uh, a genuine tough guy. And they, the studio put him on it because they thought they might have some rowdy kids, you know. So uh, yeah, Cliff right. was also a world-class motorcycle enduro rider. He and Keenan Wynn used to do this, this uh, 500cc single cylinder class enduro race in Europe, which is a real tough race. So I didn't know that at the time, but I, I knew he was the one that took me out to introduce me to my, my Harley David Sportster, Davidson. And, uh, so he's starting with the baby ones. He said, now look, you just, this is where your foot goes. You push down, you're in first gear. And this take this real easy. I just had a show with a little Ronnie Howard on a moped. And he got away from him. He broke his finger. Mm-hmm. We had to wait to shoot. So just 
take it easy. And, and I'm, I'm nodding like I'm really nervous and afraid of the big machine. And so he said, okay, now here's the clutch. Here's the brake. Here's the throttle. There's the, here's your gears. And I'd be careful. And so I go, oh, okay, okay, being very timid. And then I hopped on it, dropped it into first, leaned forward, cranked it full throttle, let the clutch out, and screamed away. And then hit second perfectly. And then, you know, came to a tight turn and came back. And as I came back, he was there with a, the one finger salute up. <laughs> <laughs> but it was any, you know, he and I got along very well, but, but I really, really got him. Because he was expecting me to, you know, wobble and, but I, yeah, I had a motorcycle from the time I was, I don't know, I guess I got it when I was fifteen or so, and I'd ridden them a lot. I loved them. I don't love them. It looks too dangerous to me. Finally, now I can buy any motorcycle I want. And I don't want one. Right. But that was that was gold. Mm-hmm. But and- they, would, they would not let me do the stunt. And then when the guy did the stunt up the stairs, I mean, at the entrance. Oh, okay. Um, I wanted to. I, I thought, yeah, I can do that. Well, the, the stunt guy, his name was the whiz kid, Gary McClarty, was one of the best motorcycle stunt guys, in, and he was also the stunt coordinator. And so he put a, a wedge of tightly wadded wedge newspaper under a piece of carpet on the bottom before the first step. So it's like a little ramp, and that gets the front wheel up, and then you're riding on the corners of the stairs where the rise and the tread meet. What he didn't think about was this was a very heavy, real Harley Sportster with a rigid frame. When he got to the landing where the, you know, the mark was where we were supposed to stop, there was no other stair point to keep the bike up. The frame hung. He, he, the bike went from whatever he was doing to zero, and he did not. Oh. And he crashed into a bookcase that was on the right, nearly broke his arm. And I'm watching, you know, I'm looking at this because I've got to sit in and in the uh, position and attitude that he'd been in. And I looked at that. And once I was sure it was okay, I just looked at the first and said, I'll be in my trailer. Yeah. <laughs> and then uh, he went and got the, he, he didn't break his arm. So he was able to do it, but it was, a, you know, the bike was damaged. So they, they, uh, they re-geared it. A Harley Sportster 1962 would probably do 120 miles an hour out of the box. Mm-hmm. He re-geared that thing. So it would only do 28 miles an hour in fourth gear. So it was basically geared like the bikes they used to climb Pikes Peak. And, and he just climbed it right up there, hit the mark perfectly, stopped it using mostly compression of the engine. Just really expert. And, uh, and you know, we did it quickly, but it looks, it's as good a stunt like that as I've ever seen. It's just good. You know, right. it was a good enough match. And I, it helps having that big mustache. Mine was real. His was fake. But your eye goes, you got the army helmet and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the, the unusual clothing that D-Day wore and that big mustache. So those make, those make the visual impression and make it easy to accept the fact that that's the same guy. Yeah, and it goes with the theme on the movie. The movie is a very kinetic movie. There's always movement. There's always something kind of breaking or oh, happening. Boy. Yeah, there was. So it, it kind a, of it was a, to put it mildly, it was a great job. Or as I tell you know, people say, I know you don't want to talk about it so long ago, and I go, No, I like it. And then I quote the movie where they say, It's something that never looks bad on your permanent record chip. Right. 
So to have to have Animal House is one of your credits still 40 whatever years later. God, 45 years ago. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. And I just got a, a request to use a clip for a, a Larry David bio. Oh, really? A documentary of Larry David. And I thought, well, that's pretty great to uh, have them want to do use something because I, I think highly of Larry David. You know, he's probably a schlemiel, but he sure is funny. Anyway, I, I was happy to say yes and happy to know that something I did 45 years ago is being asked for today. Yeah. Do you have any good Belushi stories? Oh, well, God, I've known John. We flew out together. I knew John in New York before. And, uh, you know, there a lot of the John Belushi stories. Are they good stories? I don't know. He was very funny. He was, he was um, rarely simply talking to you in the moment. He was usually, I, I hate the term, was he always on? But it, I know what they're meaning. And, and yes, he was a lot. You know, I had a few conversations with him that weren't. One, uh, he thought I should quit acting and be a guitar player, which I said, oh, thanks for the compliment, but I don't think so. And uh, I tried to, we had one good conversation about, he kept introducing me and another, one of my best friends at the time, John Hurd, when he would introduce us to people, he'd say, this is Bruce and John, they're great actors. And I said, you know, John, you're an actor. You and I did a movie together. We're, we're actors. Why do you make the differentiation? He said, no, 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 I'm a, I'm a sketch player. And I said, well, think of it this way. It's exactly the same thing, only in a sketch, you, you just are doing the climax. In a, in a movie, you have to, I called it stringing beads. You, you, you know, because John, when he did those Saturday Night Live sketches, he would get more and more ramped up and then he would fall out of frame half the time because there was nowhere else to go. He'd gone, he'd gone, you know, pedal to the metal. He was at full, full throttle and he would just, you know, fall out of frame. And I said, it's the same thing. It's just, you have to string your beads to the big bead, which is your climactic moment. You decide where that is, you and the writer. And you, you, you build up to that and you, and you go away from that. And we had that conversation and I, I didn't talk to him after I saw Continental Divide, but he actually began to do it in that movie where you know he was carrying a movie that was not just a comedy and uh, he had to build. And uh, I, I meant to, I wish I, one of the regrets I have is I didn't pick up the phone right away. And I said, there you go, that's it, great. That, and uh, we did have a fight about the gun in the horse scene because he, he took the gun from me when we were rehearsing it. You know the scene I'm talking about where we, I wrecked the 45 and right. the horse dies. So I did it the way D-Day would do it. D-Day was a mechanically inclined guy. And this was unspoken, but uh, I did wear a military flight suit. So in my mind, and nobody said no, he had been in the military. And he was back from the military and going to school on the GI Bill or whatever. So I, I racked the gun like a guy who knows how a 45 works. John said, no, 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 you got to do it like this. And he took my prop and he did some clowny ass thing with it. And I said, no, no, first of all, you don't get to tell me how to use my prop. And he, he it got a little, it wasn't really heated because John and I weren't going to have a problem, but it was enough heated that John Landis got nervous. And he said, wait, wait, hey, 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 now, now, now. And, and John persisted. And I just said, well, okay. And I left the set. 
I, did, I went 25 feet, you know, but I wasn't about to let John Belushi tell, you know, one of the things I knew about playing that part was the way to fail as D-Day would be to try to out Belushi Belushi. There, there's a thing about a pair, a, a comedy team, you know, a, a comedy team is, they do two different things. You've got a straight man and a setup guy. I mean, setup guy and a payoff guy. And I knew who the uh, payoff guy was. So I was very carefully engineering and shaping my performance so John could be the wild man. And that was dead against that set of parameters that I'd set for myself. So uh, finally, he just, he went, oh, yeah, whatever. And you'll see if you see it again. I, I, I racked that gun like a guy who knows how to kill people with it. You know, and there it is. And I, and I think it was a better way to set up what was going to happen in the room with the horse. Right. Now, my understanding was that was actually filmed in the administrative building. It was in the president's office, buddy. It was actually in the president's office. It was okay. in the president's <laughs> office. And I asked him, I said, he was there. He was there all the time. He was a young guy. He was like, I think he was only 38 years old or something. And, you know, they tried to set Animal House up at a lot of schools. Nobody mm -hmm. east of the Mississippi would do it because they had, it was, you know, a counterculture kind of magazine, National Lampoon. And they had just had that cover where there was a guy with a gun and a little dog and said, you don't buy this magazine, I'll shoot this dog. Okay. And so they were, they were kind of in the social doghouse at the time. But uh, University of Oregon said yes. And I asked the president, I don't remember his name, really nice guy, a good guy. And I, I said, you know, it uh, doesn't matter to me really, but this is a real horse and it can take a dump in your office. And he goes, yeah, I know. <laughs> and, but, you know, the studio was going to repair anything that went wrong, they'd fix. So he just was enjoying himself. So he was hoping for a new carpet. He just didn't care. He just, the movie was there. He probably... He probably didn't know any of us but Belushi. And he was probably very happy to have John Belushi in his office. That's really cool. Um, do you have any favorite spots in Eugene? Or have you been back to Eugene since then? I, you know, I haven't been to Eugene. And I, I hear Cottage Grove, where we shot the parade, is completely different. Mm -hmm. But uh, I'll, I'll tell you another interesting John Belushi story about Animal House. At the uh, Eugene Hotel, they had one or two nights a week. They had jazz blues band. And John had not yet sung, he not, you know, way before the Blues Brothers. And so he was talking to me, he knew I was a musician and said, I don't know, what do you think? And uh, we were at the bar and he said, should I get up and sing? So I said, yeah, sure, sure, why not? What, if not here, where? This is great. The, the band was good. So he shut up and I think he did Sweet Home Chicago and Soul Man, I think he did. And those of course were the, the jump outs from Blues Brothers. And uh, the songs he did when he toured with that, that you know, the Blues Brothers band, the, the, the backup musicians were, you know, top shelf. They were really good. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that happened while we were shooting Animal House. That was wow. his first uh, getting in front of an audience and really singing. And he was good. He was good. Yeah. Um, okay. So I want to fast forward a little bit. So let's talk about Tales from the Crypt. Um, yeah, that's so what this is all about, baby. Well, this is this is really a Trojan horse for me to talk about Animal House, but you know. <laughs> hey, listen, when you got that kind of coincidence, explore it. Oh hell yeah! Um, okay, so fast forward um, almost twenty years. Gosh, 
Um, so now you've done, you've got a bunch more films and roles, you know, Quantum Leap and all these other great shows. Um, how did uh, your Tales of the Crypt role come about? Well, that's pretty good. I was, my wife and I were talking about it a few hours ago. I was doing my cousin Vinny mm-hmm. and they offered it to me and I really wanted to do it, but I was working. So the only way I could get there and I had to be there, whatever it was, whatever time it was on this particular morning. And it meant um, flying all night, no sleep at all, and going straight to the set and, and shooting. So, uh, I mean, I, I had to, in order to get there, there were, I don't think I could fly nonstop. So it was a, it was a challenge to get there and I was really tired, but it was uh, so worthwhile. And Michael J. Fox, I, I can't say enough about him as a director of that episode anyway. Mm-hmm. And what a what a tough guy he was with the powers that be leaning on him. You know, they he he at one point they were I don't know if they were were nervous about schedule or money or whatever, but he finally one day they were they were getting a little uh, what's the proper word? I mean, they were doing their job, of course, but they were they were kind of clouding the air too much, and, right. and finally Michael stopped and said, "Look." You begged me, you wanted me to do this thing. You wanted me to direct this thing. It's a short enough schedule as it is. Let me do it. And they backed off. And uh, he did a great job. And it was a pretty good cast, as I recall. Oh, yeah, with uh, Bruno Kirby and Terry Garr. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and James Tolkien as the cop. Yeah, he's, always, yeah. he's always fun. Yeah, it pissed me off. I knew, oh, really? I knew all of them. Well, he's one of these guys that if you've got your feet up and he's going to kick them off, he kicks him too hard. Uh, he, he does, you know, I don't, to me, another actor should never hurt another actor, period. And part of this is stage discipline where you can't because they've got seven more shows that week. And also it's not to be real. It's to look real. Right. And it's not for you to feel something. It's for the audience to feel something. So he did. And I knew Tolkien. I, I knew him and uh, he's good. He's a good actor. He's very effective. If you want, if you want the Jimmy Tolkien note to be played, there's nobody better. Mm-hmm. But I don't even know if it was that job or another job. But uh, he kicked my, and my feet were up. Like, you know, a lot of times if you're a sheriff in a town or whatever, or you're a disrespectful guy, they'll, the screenwriter will write, he's got his feet up on the desk or whatever. So it might have been this one, might have been something different. Yeah, I was watching it. I noticed that moment too um, earlier. I was watching it earlier today. I noticed there's the scene where you when you come back from uh, South America and you're trying to convince <laughs> them that you that you're the real Lou. You right. kind of got your feet up and you're trying to tell your story, and then yeah, Tolkien kind of comes up and shows your feet off. Yeah, there was that one. Well, he did it too hard, and I just said because I'm, you know, I'm a pretty fearless guy, and I said, don't fucking do that again, Jimmy. <laughs> what are you talking about? I said, you know what I'm talking about. Don't do it. And uh, you know, I hope the scene is effective, but I just don't think. It's ever good to, to uh, you know, inflict yeah. any kind of damage or pain. Yeah. It's a, it, it shows a lack of respect and a lack of discipline and, frankly, a lack of skills, I think. Um, so what direction were you given to play this character, Lou? Oh, very little. They, he wanted me. I mean, when, once we discussed the, uh, the – it's more than just an accent. It was a persona that I that, – and I had to draw it up quickly. Because I, as I said, I was doing the Southern Sheriff and my cousin Vinny. 
And so there was a, there, you know, I lived in New York, stage actor living in New York. So I knew a whole lot of Dim's Days and those guys, you know. Mm-hmm. And so I just channeled one of them and, uh, to, you know, just took not just his accent, but his whole persona. And uh, so after that was decided, uh, he just, uh, I'm trying to think of any specific directing. He was pretty, we were in a hurry. I don't remember him doing anything that I felt, maybe some guidance here and there, but a lot of the really good directors, they don't, they cast you and they, you have a, like what I like to do is I make a very careful preparation for a five minute conversation with the director about what I intend to do for his story. And since I'm a, you know, the, usually the third, fourth or fifth banana, I, I have a very strict discipline about serving the main, the main story, the main arc. I don't go in there and make it about my character or me. I try to figure out what are they, what did the writer envision and what did the writer and the director agree was the main thrust of the story. And then I try to, to serve that. So uh, in my preparation, if I have time, I, I get this together with notes so that I don't have to take too much of his time. And usually 90% of the time, in fact, I can't remember when it wasn't accepted, they'll go, yeah, sounds really good. Because, you know, they don't have time to go as far down the role, into the role as, as the individual actor playing it does, especially when you get to secondary characters. They may, I'm thinking now about Steven Spielberg and Lincoln Mm-hmm. And Spielberg is just a great, great director. Somebody asked me, they said, well, he, he doesn't really direct, does he? And I, I couldn't believe what I'd heard because he is meticulous and he, he is very hands-on and he's, you know, he's shaping and, and uh, guiding performance all the time. So, uh, but I thought he had 147 speaking roles. So he damn well better be able to leave them to their own devices most of the time. Right. But, but when, uh, when something was a little too, like an, I did one really, really close, close up. And uh, he put a funny lens. I'd never seen a little pancake lens. And it was literally, I was, I don't know, 15 inches away from it. And I kept doing this thing and ended up supposed to see a war department map that's been burned because his son was playing with it by the fire. And I had obviously had this problem with his son playing with War Department property before. And my guy was relatively humorless, um, Secretary of War Stanton. Mm-hmm. And so I would do this where I'm supposed to go up and look at the map and, and look at the burned part and turn and say, has the boy been playing with it again? And so what this camera was to get was my reaction of seeing the burn. And I would do it and... Stephen from around the corner in Video Village, we call it, say, nope, too big. Nope, too big. Nope, too big. And my, I thought I was doing absolutely nothing. And uh, we were, he was just letting it run, and I was just doing it and then walking over to Daniel Day-Lewis. And uh, finally, I mean, like six or seven, eight times, I said, I'm doing nothing. And I thought, okay, I will try to suck energy out of the camera and the prop and the world through my eyes, nose, and mouth. In other words, not express anything. Suck it in. Be like a black hole. So I did that one time, and he said, that's it. So I thought, wow, God, that is interesting. That So all those other times when I thought I was doing next to nothing, 
I was obviously doing something and it was too much. So when I, when I turned myself basically inside out as a, a creature of expression, that was what he was looking for. So that's a, that, I got a great lesson there. Well, that's fascinating. It was fascinating. That's, that's some graduate school acting stuff right there. Uh, which, you know, again, back to your role of Lou is so big and so over the top and just, yeah. he's just like mutilating the scenery. Yeah. <laughs> See, some actors chew the scenery. He's just plowing yeah, it through. But that's, that's, what we, that's what we like in Dallas in the Crypt. We like the that's big exactly, performance. Well, you know, that, I mean, tone, tone and style, well, that was all discussed, but uh, you also, you know, I'd seen the show enough to see once you've seen the Crypt Keeper that they were using at that time, you mm-hmm. know, it's going to be high energy and camp, you know? Right. So, so I knew, and, and it was quick. They're short. They weren't very long. So uh, they were, let's put it this way. They were painted in broad strokes. No, it's, but that, that, that's, that's, the, that's what makes the impression. That's what, you know, the 30 minute episode, you have that, to paint in those broad strokes to get it. That's right. And I, I had probably the best last line I'll ever have. Any last words, Mr. Paloma? Mm-hmm. I'm Lou Paloma. Blow me. <laughs> when I, I can't tell you how many sets I walked onto in the months after that. And somebody would say, I'm Lou Paloma. Blow me. <laughs> <laughs> and I just said, okay, people do watch this stuff. Yeah. And it, I was just looking at his resume and uh, Michael J. Fox only ever really directed one thing. Um, which yeah, well, was he Lu- was another another tv show and i'm like wow he really could have direct gone on to direct or he could, he could. Still direct he was I, you know i really loved the guy he was a great guy and and uh, you know his fight for the last 20 years is amazing i just uh, i got a lot of respect for him and but mostly in that case for the way he stood up to the the powers that be because you could tell that he had evoked conversations they had imploring him to do it because i think they must have been using stunt directors you know, anything to get a, get the eyeballs. Right. He, they had, he, they he had, gave it right back to them. Yeah. Cause and, they had Schwarzenegger last season was their big actor director. Yeah. So that's what they were doing and he knew it. So I'm sure they begged him to do it. And, uh, and when he, he, I was standing right there and he told them and they, they, by God, they backed off. And he was good. He was fun too. I, he was a great audience. You know, a lot of, a lot of actors, uh, when they direct are not really good audiences for whatever reason, but he was, he was, uh, and that's what a, a director really has to be able to do is look at it like he's seeing it for the first time as the audience will and react honestly. And uh, the great ones, like in the theater, I'm thinking of Mike Nichols. He could look at the scene, turn around and come up to the set and to the stage and say something to you and turn around and walk back to where he was sitting in the theater and turn around and watch it as if he'd never seen it before. And that's, you know, that's just a skill set or a, a certain sensitivity that's very important. Mm-hmm. Um, before we move on, are there any other uh, stories or thoughts on your Tell Us in the Crypt episode? God, you know, it's so long ago. And it was so fast. And I was, the first day I was a zombie tired. I don't remember, I, you know, I don't remember much. I, I knew Terry Gar and I liked Terry a lot. And, uh, Bruno Kirby, I don't know. Bruno's whatever. Uh, it was perfect. The relationship that he and I had in the real world was perfect for that show. Mm-hmm. I was, you know, I wasn't a big fan. He was, a, he was always a, a tell you how to do it guy. And, uh, you know, whether it's John Belushi telling me how to use a prop 
or Bruno Kirby telling me how to be Bruce McGill, it doesn't play with me very well. So, mm-hmm. but it worked great for the uh, relationship in the show. And I don't, I don't remember much. I just remember it being really fast. And I remember, I think I had a fake nose. And I remember right. thinking, wow, this is a really interesting look. Right, because I was watching it earlier. Because the first half of the episode, you're you're in a lot of makeup and prosthetics and stuff until you you quote go to South South America and get yeah. your get your plastic surgery. Then okay, that's that's the Bruce McGill I know. Yeah, that was, that's what it was. I got I got my nose fixed down there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, another beautiful sunset. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I should I haven't seen it since it was new, so I I don't know where I'd even find it to look at. Maybe even YouTube. I don't know. Yeah, I, I can send you something later. Oh, that'd be great because I, now that we've talked about it, I mean, I, I, it's not, I, you know, after all the things I've done, it's not one I think about much because it was so, so brief and it came up so suddenly that it was literally a week in my life, you mm-hmm. know, bam and done. And it was, I remember pretty grueling hours because, you know, they, that's what they were on about is he was taking too long. But, uh, you know, you, you can't schedule it an eight day shoot in five days and, and get it the way you want it, get it good. But I think that's what they were doing. Yeah. Especially a first time director. They're still feeling the doubt. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And and trying to make it as good as he can make it. mm -hmm. Well, I I think it's a fantastic episode. And by by the time this comes out, we will have a review uh, for our podcast. So people can listen to that as well. Very good. Um, okay. Well, I know we're running low on time, so I've got some, uh, fun questions to throw at you. Throw. Okay. So we talked about that. You're a, at least according to your IMDb, a accomplished guitarist and pianist. What is, uh, the best concert you've ever been to? Oh boy. The best concert. You know what? I have a friend who's a manager of the Rolling Stones mm-hmm. and he said a few years ago, said, can you keep a secret? I said, sure. He said, go to the this theater on Hollywood Boulevard. Don't tell anybody. And it was the Rolling Stones and a venue that holds 800. Oh man. And it, that, that is without a doubt the greatest concert I've ever been to. And I was, you know, we were free to roam. So I, knowing what I know, I, I stood right in front of the guy that was mixing. And this was the same concert they were going to take out and fill stadiums with. And it was just, you know, I'm a Stones fan anyway and have been from the very beginning when they came to play the teen fair in San Antonio in 1964. And so that, that was probably the best. Yeah, that's the best. Mm-hmm. And how many guitars do you own? Right now I probably got about 10. 10, which is your go-to. My favorite is a Ramirez classical guitar, sort of a classical flamenco mm. and built in Madrid, Spain in the early seventies. Wow. That sounds beautiful. It is. Um, it lives in Texas now. We're, and the next one, I have another guitar that I really love that I'll, the next time I'm driving to Texas and my wife hasn't filled up the car, I'll take that one. These are guitars that I don't let the airlines have. Right. And it's a 1934-00-18 Martin, mm. completely stock and in good shape. And it's a wonderful guitar. Do you have a temperature control room? No. No. no, they've lived this long. I didn't get that one until the 70s. So uh, they've lived this long. I'm, I'm pretty careful. Like uh, sometimes I'll leave one of those humidifier things in them if I'm going to be, I try not to be in the desert for too long. Mm-hmm. And San Antonio is humid and LA is humid often enough. Yeah. And, uh, you know, 
it's kind of, if they lived long enough for them to be really good when I met them 50 years after they were made, they'll be okay. Sure. All right. Uh, and then in the very first episode of Tales of the Crypt, uh, William Sadler goes into a cafe and orders a cheese sandwich. What kind of cheese would you want on a burger or grilled cheese sandwich? Cheddar. Cheddar. Smoked, aged. Regular, good, old, aged, sharp cheddar. Sharp cheddar. There we go. Okay. And then our uh, traditional last question is, again, this is Dads from the Crypt. We like to, you know, give on advice, um, whether it be funny or serious or whatever. Um, so what mentor advice would you like to leave our audience? Well, I have millions because I was well raised by a man that cared. And, and he would say to me, always trying to, besides teach me the value of a dollar and all that, he was uh, just trying to equip me to go through what, you know, life can be tough. Mm-hmm. And he said, well, Bruce, you know what a big shot is? No. A big shot is a little shot that never stops shooting. Mm. So I got that. And he also said, this has been fundamental. He said, Bruce, there's... Two ways for you to make money. Bruce McGill working for his money and Bruce McGill's money working for his money. And uh, that has made all the difference in my life. I became a, you know, interested in hardworking investor and money manager on my own behalf a long, long time ago. And it's made a huge difference in my life. So I would, I would advise everybody to get some financial literacy and it's not brain surgery and you know, you, it's real simple. It's live beneath your means, save the difference and invest it hmm. and learn the difference between investing and speculating. And that's basically Benjamin Graham quoted through Warren Buffett. Yeah. It's much more, you know, there's much more to it than that. But that is basically those things you have to do. And you can do them. And I, I, I managed to save money as a theater actor making nothing. But, uh, and you know, the first, my first wins as an investor were tiny, but and I also came up with this for myself. No, no profit too small to take, no loss too big to take. If it's not working, get out. Mm-hmm. And if it, you know, if you know you've got a winner and you want to go on, take a profit and move on. Hmm. So Very those cool. things, you know, in being, in being your own money manager is just common sense, especially now when interest rates are so low, you can't make anything on cash. And if you're given a guy, you know, a percentage of your portfolio to manage it for you and you've got inflation, you're not making anything. And it's not, if you take it seriously and educate yourself a little, it's not an impossible task. I think most people spend too much money for money managers because they're afraid and they've never, they just think it's beyond them. And I don't think it is, especially, you know, we're lucky to live in warts and all. This is a, a great country to to live in and, and be, it's a land of opportunity. It still is. It's right. tough. It's competitive, but you can at least what you create, you can own. Okay. Um, so what are your next projects? Uh, well, Reacher I did for Amazon prime. It comes out in February. Oh yeah. I, I actually, I saw three preview episodes, like test episodes. It was really good. That's all, that's oh, all no, I can no, say so about good. it, but no, I really liked it. Well, we certainly have a full-size reacher in Alan Richardson. You know, there was yeah. a, big, a big hue and cry when Tom Cruise was playing it because reacher's got to be 6'4", 250. So we had one. Anyway, that's coming up. And you, you mentioned Underdog. That just came out. And I'm getting ready to start 
Love and Death for HBO Max, which is the story of an axe murder that took place in 1980, just east of Dallas, Texas. And I'm playing Judge Tom Ryan, who was the actual judge of the case. Mm-hmm. And that's produced by Nicole Kidman and David E. Kelly. Okay. Very well written. And executive produced by Leslie Lincoln-Gladder, who's a very, very good, experienced director. And now, in fact, president of the Directors Guild. And I'm looking forward to that. And that shoots, I think I start, it's a limited series. And uh, I think it's seven episodes. And uh, they've been shooting all fall. And I think I start with them middle February. Okay. And then uh, I'll just stick her in. And then my wife said, you're not going to work anymore for a while. (laughs) She'll say, do you really need to work? And I went, no, I don't need to work, but I need to work. Right. Because as long as I can do it, the way I want to do it, meaning basically that I can still learn lines. I'm going to do it because it, uh, you know, I've done it since, since I was 11 and not that I'm Picasso or anything, but just because he had enough money, he didn't quit painting. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, uh, it's great, but I don't, when I'm not working, I don't miss it at all. My life is really interesting. And my wife and I are building a compound in Texas, my hometown in the neighborhood I grew up in. And that's oh, that's a full time job to plan and get that going. Yeah. So life is great. Life is rich and full. I wish COVID would be in the rearview mirror, but yeah, uh, don't we all? Know, I'm not alone. There's probably seven and a third billion people on the planet that wish that. Yeah. All right. Well, that wraps things up, Bruce. Thank you so much. This is My a real pleasure. treat for me. Oh, good. I'm glad I enjoyed it. I I I think it's fun talking to an Oregonian about Animal House. Yeah, I, I can't, I'm going to have to send this to all my friends from college. They're going to get a kick out of it. Yeah, well, it was a good place. Really nice place. Okay. I do remember going to the University of Oregon game, and the field was like a, it's sort of like a high school field. It was, and it was, you know, not unusually, it was rainy and muddy. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was just great because the players were slip sliding along the wet grass and we were stomping through mud and they were, you know, open bleachers. It was great. Mm-hmm. I do like my football. Oh, yeah. Oh, we're, I'm a big Duck fan, so excited. Perfect name for a team, too, by the way. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, all right. Well, again, that wraps things up. We appreciate everyone for listening, and we'd really appreciate it if you'd give us a rating or review on iTunes and a rating on Spotify. And with that, we thank you for listening to Dads from the Crypt. Bye, guys. <laughs> Follow Dads from the Crypt on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or I will follow you to the grave. (laughs) No, seriously, you really should watch, but be careful what you ask for. You may get it.